Hi, this isn't one of my normal gigs. Um, many of you may not recognize me, but my name is James. I'm one of uh, the elders here at Central. And those of you who've been around for the last kind of half or dozen so weeks um, will know we've been plowing through a series called Life Goals, like you just saw on the film. And uh, the whole point of the series is really an acknowledgement that um, we've aspirations for our lives. Um, we've hopes. We want to see things happen. And, you know, we need God's wisdom for the normal kind of getting on with life kind of stuff for the situations and circumstances we walk through. And we've looked at God's design for friendship. Um, you know, what's his best for marriage? What's his wisdom on our parenting? How should we approach dating? And today we're going to look at singleness and community. And this is a really important one because it's a circumstance that many of us find ourselves in or may find ourselves in in the future, and it's a sensitive topic. I think we can all say that. That's been often poorly communicated. Um, it's, we've probably littered it with a bit of misunderstanding um, and assumption. Um, and actually, if I'm honest, I think significant damage has been done um, through the unspoken practice of the church. Not maliciously, but just through a, a lack of awareness. And just a quick caveat before we um, get into it is, um, I'm not going to, we can't cover everything. Um, I'm not going to tackle sexuality. Uh, but we did a sermon series called Sex Bomb a couple of years ago, um, where Carl tackled some of these issues really, really well. Um, so do go and check them out on the website. They're really helpful. Now, if you're not single or if you're married, there could be a tendency to kind of switch off. But we're talking about community here. We're putting, we very deliberately put them together because, you see, if it involves community, the responsibility lies with us all. And if we're going to be the church that Jesus innate desired us to be and God created us to be, we've got to understand each other, those of us who are in different situations and circumstances. So just very quickly, how have we got here? Well, on the slide uh, now, there's a quick bit of layman's uh, psychology, so forgive me if I butcher this, but this is called Maslow's Hierarchy, and it's a hierarchy of need, and it's a very simple model where we start at the bottom, and as our needs are met, we move upwards. And the first few levels are our basic needs, physiological needs, so it's kind of food, water, warmth, and rest, basically what it means to stay alive. And then we get onto our safety needs, a sense of security and safety, you know, that kind of roof over our heads, you know, a home where we feel secure. But beyond these basic levels, we get to the, the belongingness and love needs, our, intimate relation, our need for intimate relationships and friends. And you see, for the most part of our society, our basic needs are met. And so it's meeting the need of our belonging and our intimacy, which is, as a society, our most pressing need is often most clearly felt. You know, add to this the kind of economic development, it means we can actually afford to live on our own. Uh, you know, the revolutions of communication and social media, you know, we get that sense of interaction and experience of community and the appearance of it, even if it's in reality a little bit of a shallow, poor imitation. But you see, all this said, what it leaves us with is a heightened desire for connectedness, because that's our most pressing felt need. But we live in a culture which is increasingly leaving us feeling isolated and disconnected. And this all goes on to say, meaning the consequences of our singleness, we're likely to feel even more acutely. 
possibly more than any other generation has before us. Now I'm 34, I'm not married, I hope to be one day maybe. I've been in relationships before and they've just not worked out for various reasons. Um, So I've lived and I've wrestled with this stuff. I've pastored many people around the the semi-chaos of navigating um, this kind of landscape. As my friends have me. And I'm going to get into Matthew 6 uh, shortly, but as a really helpful bit of introduction, um, Fiona Stewart, who um, some of you will know, who used to be um, an elder here uh, a couple of years ago, who's now over in Glasgow, um, she wrote down some really helpful thoughts when we started thinking about the whole topic of singleness. And um, the whole thing, her whole kind of open letter to the church is available on Hannah's blog, which I think you can find a link on the central Facebook page, a few things down. Um, but it's really worth a read if you, if you get a chance. Um, but I just want to read a little, just a few bits from it, just by means of introduction. So this is Fiona talking, not me. Okay, She's like a lady. Um, so this is her. She said, um, so here are a list of things that really helped me as a single person within the church. Invite me over with people of my own age. Often I've found that I've been invited to events with other single people, many of them students or people in their 20s. I love mixing with people of all ages. That's one of the nice things that makes the church so countercultural and magnificent. But sometimes it's nice to hang out with people who get your cultural references and understand your pressures. And the students would probably prefer not to have the slightly weird middle-aged person getting down with the kids. It's hard work for everyone. Think about inviting me along with you to events we're all going to. One of the times I've found singleness hardest is when I've had to turn up at church or a social event on my own, and the plus one isn't the answer. There are a couple in Central who once told me that if we ever all were going to something, I should always feel able to call up and arrange for us to go together. It's not a big thing. It's a huge thing. And I love that we had that conversation. It's as simple as keeping an eye out for anyone who is on their own and making them feel welcome in our friendship groups. Come to think of it, it's not about singleness. It's about being Christ-like. Affirm me when I want to take some time off or I tell you I'm not available. Often it's tempting to assume that single people have more time on their hands. Sometimes that's true. And I stand in awe of my married friends who juggle work, family and church responsibilities. But it's not always the case. Sometimes that's my fault for filling my life with activity in order to alleviate my loneliness. But sometimes it's because I give in to the demands of other people. And there's nobody there to help me guard my yeses with a thousand noes. Encourage me to rest well. And like I say, that's been doing the rounds um, online for a few days. And we've been, to be honest, pretty shocked at how much it seems to have resonated. I think Hannah said it had like 1,600 views in two days or something on her blog. Um, So I think we've kind of slightly misunderstood, you know, kind of underestimated it. And so I think it's only right, you know, we want to say, you know, if you have felt, if you are single and you have felt disadvantaged or overlooked by the church, if you felt ignored in leadership um, and speaking as a, as a moment for one of uh, your elders here, can I symbolically say sorry? I'm sorry that we have, may have made you feel uncomfortable or excluded. You know, we're sorry 
And that's not to indulge or affirm a victim spirit, because Jesus has redeemed that, thankfully. But it is an acknowledgement that, you know, we could have taken possibly more care. And so please hear that. Uh, now, before we get into a few specifics, um, I'd love to ground it in Matthew 6. So I'm just going to read a couple of verses from uh, starting verse 25. This is Jesus speaking. And he says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are they not much more important and valuable than they? Can any of you by any of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that even Solomon in all of his splendor was not dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and gone tomorrow and thrown into the fire, will he not clothe you much more, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow has enough worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And you see, for me, being unmarried leaves the future appearing very empty. Not because it is, or it will be, but, but, but just because from this vantage point, I can't see it yet. I don't know what I'll be doing. I don't know where I'll be. I don't know who I'll be with. I don't know if I'll ever have kids. And it's many ways, it's this kind of I don't know, which characterizes so much of the challenges around this stuff. And naturally, we, I'm, you know, we can be anxious because we want to know. We want security and certainty. And we kind of think uh, that, that, that kind of having the right relationship or getting married will somehow achieve that. But I wanted to put that scripture before us because in the principle that we make God's kingdom and priority our purpose, that's how we flourish. In placing our kind of hopes and our dreams fundamentally in his hands, it allows God to give us that bigger perspective. In a sense, he's saying, trust, tr- you know, put your trust in me and I'll cover the rest. And in verse 32, you know, God knows what we need. Maybe it's not what we think we need, but God knows what we actually need. And he promises to provide. You see, God's not indifferent or passive. He's not unknowing of your situation. He's not unknowing of how you feel. He's not unknowing of what you're afraid of. He's not unknowing of the fears and the anxiety that you feel. And you see, the thing is, whatever our circumstance... God's hope is that as we choose to sit in his presence with all of that stuff, that our hearts find rest simply in knowing that God knows. That's kind of the greatest comfort. And sometimes I've had times in my life where I've not understood things. I've been frustrated. I've been fed up. And yet, because I've known God's presence with me, all I've had to hold on to is, God, I don't understand. I don't know. It makes no sense. I'm hurt. I'm angry. But I know that you know. 
And for me, that's the only comfort and certainty I've got to hold on to. And so as that is a grounding, let's get a little more specific around this challenge um, of singleness. I think the first one, and this is, they're not exclusive to singleness, okay? Um, but just they may be naturally fit. But the first one I think that we need to challenge around is a sense of entitlement. You know, chuck it on the credit card. Blast through another 20-episode of a season on Netflix in 48 hours. You know, less and less are the opportunities or the need to exercise patience. For me, even sometimes the idea of boiling pasta while I put something in the microwave can almost seem laborious when I get home from work. I eat the veg raw, by the way, just so you know I get my veg. Um, but you see, we have a world which increasingly tells us we can have what we want when we want it. At least, you know, the world tells us that being dis- uncomfortable and that discomfort is somehow unnatural or wrong. Now, this isn't going to be easy for some of us to accept, but when we read our Bibles, relationships or getting married is not our right. It's not something you or I are entitled to. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying, okay? Marriage is fantastic. Relationship is wonderful. But the Bible doesn't say that God promises us a husband or a wife. God doesn't owe it us, you or I. And if I'm honest, prescriptively, Jesus of all things, he said very little about it. Jesus himself didn't marry. He didn't make any comment on why his friends Mary, Martha and Lazarus weren't married or make any suggestion that they should be. Some commentators believe the Apostle Paul may have been married at one time. But it certainly wasn't the case when he was writing his letter to the Corinthians, as he identified himself as not being married. And you can read it yourself in 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul suggests it's good not to marry. But then he says, if you can't control yourself, then you should. If you're married, stay married. But then he says, even if you are married, you should almost live as if you're not married to some extent. Because time is short and there are bigger priorities when it comes to God's kingdom. And so biblically, it's it's incredibly affirming of both being married and of not being married. And I guess the point I'm trying to make is the Bible is a lot less opinionated and offers a lot less distinction around it than we do. You know, for us, we have made it one of our key distinctions and statuses. And yet the Bible doesn't carry that sense of focus or priority about it. And if I'm honest, if we want to talk about entitlement, the only thing we are really entitled to is the consequence of our sin. And I don't think we really want to go there. Because if God was to deal with me fairly, I would be living the eternal consequence of my rebellion and my disobedience and my turning my back on God. And so I guess the obvious question is, do we need to repent of some entitlement? And that's what makes Jesus so fantastically amazing. That I'm entitled to nothing but judgment. Am I crackling? A bit. This happened this morning as well. Anyway, like I say, if God was to deal with me fairly... I would deserve nothing. 
I would deserve death. And yet because of what Jesus did, he took, the man who knew no sin became sin for me, that I could live with an eternal hope, that I could live free, that I could live looking at the future with a smile on my face, regardless of the circumstances I find myself in, because my eternal status is utterly secure. So if we're tempted to think about entitlement, I think we need to remember what we're actually thinking we're entitled to. Because when I actually think about that, it makes, my, it makes me look a little bit foolish. It makes it very obvious I'm wallowing in self-pity. And so have we forgotten what we're really entitled to? Because God's given us what we need of every significance already. Where do we need to say, God, we're sorry that we've believed ourselves entitled to something um, that you were not? And second point, I just need to affirm, guys, that the desire to get married is a good one. It's good to want to get married. In Proverbs it says, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. I'm hoping it says the same thing about husband. We'll pretend it does. You see, it's a good desire to have. People say it's great. It looks wonderful. It looks tough at times, but apparently it's still great. I don't really get that. It's great, but really hard and great, and whatever. The best thing seems to be you get all the matching crockery and the coloured cushions and blankets, things. I don't own a blanket, but if I'm honest, they look kind of useful, especially if you get heated ones. Um, anyway. But the desire for relationship companionship, I think we all know, is innate to the way we've been created. You know, God made us and he wired us that way. And because in many ways it's through relationship, it's through closeness that we actually get to express so much of God's own character. And now God sanctifies us exactly as he intends. That means he's making us more like Jesus, knocking off um, the, the, the bits that need some work on. And he does that through the circumstances that he allows us to walk through. And you know, God can do that. He doesn't need us to be married in order to sanctify us. He can do it in any and every circumstance. But it does seem that marriage is a fast lane to getting sanctified. For me, I get to be selfish without being selfish, so to speak. I get to go home and I don't have to accommodate anybody. I don't have to think about another person. I can do anything I want legitimately without being selfish. But I don't know if that's actually a good thing for me. So if you want to get married, go after it. Let's not be weird about it. Let's not be ashamed for wanting it. I'm not going to offer any dating advice because my track record is clearly a bit sketchy. But Carl did speak greatly about dating a couple of weeks ago. So go and listen to that on the website. So as part of the desire, just acknowledging the desire to marry is a good one. Can we, just, we just need to add a huge kind of but. You see, as we do desire that rightly, we need to really be honest with ourselves. Are we being driven in that by a God-given desire? Or are we being driven by the lack of it? and the panic of not having something. Because they're very, very different motivations. Is the desire for a husband or a spouse or a wife greater than your desire for God himself, if you're honest? Have you elevated that hope and that thing above God himself? Because that's what idolatry is. 
Taking something that's really good and making it an ultimate thing. A thing we have to have. A thing we have to have above all things. A non-negotiable. And so let's not hold up something like relationship or marriage in our hearts as an ultimate thing that ultimately is temporary in the nature of eternity. You see, marriage isn't forever. It's a beautiful picture. There's a lot to enjoy, but ultimately it's temporary. And God gave us it to be a living reality of Christ and his church. But in the same way, you know, God... God, same way as when you've got a picture of somebody, you don't need it when you see them face to face. In the same way, we won't need marriage when we see God face to face because we'll understand exactly what it was trying, God intended it to represent as a picture for us. And so when, God, when Jesus is saying, seek first the kingdom, he's calling us to this higher perspective. And a fear of being alone can drive us unhelpfully. But on the flip side, it can actually stop us getting to relationship in the first place. And this may be the case for some of you. It's very easy to sometimes give up and just think it's better just, you know, I'm just going to protect myself. Maybe we've decided we've been burned enough and we've been disappointed enough. And actually a little bit of subtle bitterness can seem the best solution. And I empathize with that. I can see how easy it could be to come to that conclusion. You know, God understands that our hearts are fragile things. But let's not let fear rob us of the potential blessings God might have for us. And so I'd challenge you, if that is you, if you know that in your heart you kind of withdraw, that you're trying to kind of, you want to protect yourself, listen to God. Let him speak to you. Yes, relationships involve risk. But it's a risk we take alongside the promise of God's continued presence, as we read in Matthew 6. And my third observation around singleness stuff is taking responsibility. It's been my observation that given there are so many factors that we cannot know about it, there can be a real temptation that we put our life on hold until we get married. Until we meet someone, we always put our life on pause waiting in that uncertainty. Now there might be some wisdom in not tying ourselves down too heavily so that we're able to react to opportunities that actually God God has for us. I get that. But there is in that a danger that we're always waiting for something that may not happen. So let's not make an excuse of it. You know, actively develop yourself spiritually if you're single. Invest in your character. Learn how to read books. Read the Bible. Because from a time point of view, although it may feel like you haven't got much, you've actually got plenty of it. The choices you're making is not have you got the time, it's how you're spending it. Make the most of your freedom and opportunity to spend yourselves on other people. Leverage your singleness to make disciples. And so who are the people that you are investing in? 
besides yourself? Where are you being inconvenienced in your life that is building character? You see, if your life revolves almost exclusively around pursuing your own comfort and entertainment, I really want to challenge you as to whether you're spending your time wisely. Similarly, if we're using our singleness as a license to be lazy, if you're single but actually self-interests and indulgent and you're not serving, get it, get serving. Learn to commit to things. And if you're disappointed with God, and I know actually, if we're honest, all of us will feel a sense of disappointment, even if we don't direct it directly at him. Let's learn to engage him in our struggle. Let's learn to engage God in the things that hurt. Let's engage him with the things that actually um, we really hurt about, that we've not quite managed to let go of. Because quite honestly, I've had, I've had some gloomy times emotionally over the years. But if I'm honest, it's where I learned to pray. It's where I learned that the purest worship I can bring to God isn't what I do in here or what I sing. But it's when I bring my raw anger and emotion to him as I walk to work. Or when we bring him our tears because we've nowhere else to go but to him. And so I'm sorry if this sounds like I'm bashing you. If you're single, I'm not trying to bash you. God loves you so much. He desires so much for your life. He, he wants you to know him. He wants you to know that he is enough regardless of the circumstance. He wants you to know that his presence can be more intimate and more satisfying to your soul than any spouse can be while you wait for that potential spouse. All I'm saying is let's not waste our time while we're single waiting for something. A quick pet pet peeve before we move on. Can we stop comparing our situations to each other? I think we have a chronic problem with that. And for me, this is how I've had to reconcile. You know, if God knows me and he loves me, and if he's determined that my story is going to meander not very efficiently around this relational minefield, if that's what he wants for me to teach me more of who he is, and to sanctify me, would I really want it to be any other way? Would I really choose a different path for myself than the God who knows me and loves me would have me walk? And I have to trust that one day, all that I don't understand now will make a lot more sense. But that's a deferred understanding. That's what faith is. Faith is deferring understanding and submitting our, 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 our kind of like interpretation of our circumstances, trusting one day we will understand. And comparison is a thief of joy. Comparison just makes us miserable. It can rob us of the wonder and purpose of what God wants to do in us. So let's not compare ourselves. Let's not compare paths. Let's not look at what we consider smug married people and think, oh, they've all got it great. What is God doing in you? What's he wanting to teach you now? What's his, what's his desire for you to know him in? 
And moving on a bit, like as I said, we're not just talking about singleness. This is singleness and community. And that's incredibly deliberate. Because it isn't just something which affects some of us. It involves us all. Now within the church, there's a big emphasis on family. It's part of our language here. Central particularly is is incredibly biblical. And I'm glad we do. But there is a danger that we almost reduced it too much to what we've come to think of as nuclear family. Two mum, dad, 2.4 kids, or 1.3, or whatever the stats say it is now. You know, the basic biology of mum, dad, and kids. But you see, Jesus said some fairly shocking stuff about family. In Matthew 12, we read this. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside, asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who are, who is my mother, and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hands towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mothers and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. You see, Jesus blew up radically and expanded that notion of family. The notion of New Testament family goes way beyond the biology that we broadly understood it to be. Of course, Jesus loved his mother and his brothers. But in his, like, I'm God and I know everything, by the way, thing, the wisdom he was bringing to bear was that ultimately even our families are natural and temporary relationships. You see, instead, Jesus came to call us into a new family where all of us are fully-fledged members on par with each other. And families are wonderful things. They're, they're an expression of so much of who God is and his commitment and the relationships. But is our view of family become a little narrow? Now, being neither married nor having kids, I was a little hesitant to say it quite as strongly as this, but married people said I could. So can I just suggest that we may have idolized a little bit nuclear family? Have we made it too much the focus on ours? Have we put our boundaries on our family as our primary concern? Because if if that is only our real primary concern, our immediate families, we have very little space in our minds for much else. The challenge Jesus clearly says is you need to think bigger and wider about how you see family and what being community really looks like. Now families, I don't know how many of you are here, but anyway, for us unmarried, just your lives are incredibly stabilizing. Just to be around you in the chaos of the family mess, even at 5.30 tea time. Like I've learned, 5.30 is a bad time if you have kids. And yet I've been hugely privileged to have some pretty horrific 5.30 tea times. I've literally had the door open to me at times and had literally, hi, I'm in a foul mood. The kids have done my head in, sorry. And they turned away and walked in and I've let my, you know, pretty much walked in myself. And I love that. Really love that. And some of you model that incredibly already. And can we just say a massive thank you for doing that? Just opening up your normal life to those of us without families. But if you are married or you are in a family, if you don't do that already, how could you involve unmarried types in your life more? How could you make your missional community even more a reflection of inclusive family? If you see other people who model that really well, ask them how they do it. I don't think it's that difficult. And speaking as a single person, 
You may not believe it, but the chances are we're happy doing really boring stuff. Most of us do not need a lot of entertaining. We just like tagging along. Whether it's random IKEA trips or following you around the park as you walk your child, like you know, being asked by your eight-year-old why I'm not married yet, again. Like to you, that may seem pathetic, but to us, if we're honest, it's actually hugely significant. And speaking from experience, I've I've found incredible healing just being around families. Just seeing how they operate in all their dysfunction and mess and fun and all, in, all that's in between. Although the elephant in the room is, guys, your dating suggestions are nuts. So maybe go easy on the advice. I don't think I've had any good suggestions from married people. <laughs> it's fine. They're all smug anyway. Right. So... <laughs> I joke, I joke. Anyway, how, so how could you guys use mealtimes? If you're not doing it already, how could you open your life up? Just to include uh, those who aren't like you in what you're already doing. But it's not just families, I think, this principle of community is applicable to. It's definitely a more broad principle. And it's definitely like single people and people without kids. If your hospitality only revolves around people like you in your situation... I think similarly, the challenge is to think bigger. Even as friends, if you practice practical functional exclusivity, if you only hang out with the same people, then I'll challenge you again. I think we need to think wider. Because you see, everything we've been given, everything in our lives, our families and close friends, God's given us in order that we can be similarly generous with them. And you see, as we finish, you know, we've chatted some stuff through about um, singleness and community. Can we just acknowledge that, like, being single is tough? This stuff is hard. Trusting God with all the inevitable uncertainty is messy. And the, the wonderful thing, though, is that God knows and he cares. You know, he loves you so deeply. He knows how you feel. He knows what you hope for. He knows the disappointments you felt. And as I was praying about this this morning, I just really felt he wants you to know that he knows. And sometimes it's hard to believe that he knows or cares. And I think all of us, especially in this situation, need to hear that reassuring voice of the Holy Spirit. What is, do we need to repent for blaming God for anything? Do we need to forgive other people at all? You see, more generally too, as we finish up this series of um, kind of what we've called life goals, with the response of kind of bringing all things to God, you know, surrendering some of our perspectives, surrendering some of our priorities, surrendering our non-negotiables that actually our hearts aren't willing to let go of. Can we take the courage to submit these things to ultimately his wisdom? You know, it's almost like we want to pray, God, you know, as hard as it is, I want to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. I want to hold nothing back, no strings attached. I want to come to you with empty hands, but I need you to help me open these clenched fingers. I want to trust you, God, with the things that are important to me. I want to trust you with the things 
that I'm nervous about. I want to trust you with the hopes that feel so fragile. Let me just pray. Father, we want to thank you for your presence. We want to thank you for your gentleness and your kindness to us. Father, we want to repent where we have played on a sense of entitlement. Father, we want to repent where we feel tempted to think that you owe us anything. Father, we are sorry for where we have been ungrateful. And Father, we want to acknowledge that you've given us everything we need for life and godliness. Lord, you have given us all the hope that we need. And Father, we wonder and thank you that we can look to a higher perspective, knowing that one day we'll be with you in paradise. One day we'll not know what it is to fear. One day we'll not know uncertainty. But Father, as we walk through what you have for each of our lives, Lord, we pray that you'd give us the courage to hold nothing back. We pray you'd give us the courage to say, God, your kingdom come. We're seeking your will first. And Father, I pray where there there is disappointment, I pray, Lord, where we're burying things, where we're holding on to uh, things, God, that you, you, Father, through your spirit, you'd bring healing. Father, we are, if we're honest, all so needy. We are needing of your voice and your, the power of your spirit and your reassurance. And so, Father, we ask that we would receive you. We'd receive all that you have for us. Father, we love you and we're sorry we've, we've forgotten how generous you've been.